Support for Innovation Hub comes from Cambridge Savings Bank. Introducing the CSB1 package, a checking account combined with investing through Connect Invest to help you build a better tomorrow. cambridgesavings.com/csb1 Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. Here's a research finding that might seem obvious. The more a wife earns relative to her husband, the more housework the husband does. And that would seem to make sense. The more hours a woman is working, the more housework probably has to be shared. And the man does more and more housework, up to the point where he and his wife make the same amount of money. Then, according to political scientist Dan Casino, things stop. Men on average don't do any more housework. Actually, for every $1,000 the woman earns after that, the man does 15 minutes less housework. This finding is part of a constellation of academic findings that have started to reveal something striking about where we are in terms of gender expectations, especially among young people, and how those views on gender are changing politics in America. Dan Casino joins us. He's an associate professor of political science at Fairleigh Dickinson University. Dan, welcome. It's a pleasure speaking with you, Kara. So, Dan, um, let me start with that finding that I just described, uh, which shocked me, I have to say. Maybe it did not surprise you. Why do men do less housework when their wives make more money than they do? Well, earning more money is an important part of traditional masculinity. You want to be the breadwinner. And these men have been brought up in a culture where they're supposed to be the breadwinner. And so when they're not the breadwinner, it's a real threat to their masculine identity. When we talk about gender, we're almost always talking about women. But men's masculinity is really, really fragile. So it's easy to think of you know men losing their masculinity if they behave with cowardice. Or for some reason, men can lose their masculinity where women's femininity is something they're born with. Masculinity is something you have to earn. And so if you're not earning more money than your spouse, you have to find some other way to reinforce masculinity, to show that you still are a man. And so these men are apparently saying, well, I might not be making money, but I'm certainly not going to do dishes. (laughs) Now, how widespread is this? I mean, we talk about averages, but I think, you know, men listening would think, well, I mean, there are a lot of different men out there who have a lot of different sort of views on whether they should contribute to housework or whether they shouldn't or, you know, you know how much they should help their wife. Um, so give me a sense of, I don't know if you can, the spread here, the differences, what you see. It, what's interesting about this is, first off, the findings when we replicated was in the United States. The original findings in this were actually from Australia. So worldwide, this is pretty widely spread throughout Western cultures. What's interesting to me is that this is something we didn't actually see very much of up until the late 1990s. And the reason was there just weren't very many households in America where wives earn more money than their husbands. Hmm. However, that all really changed with the Great Recession of 2009. And when that happened, suddenly the unemployment rate among men went way up. The unemployment rate among women didn't go up by nearly as much. And you had a whole slew of households that came into being in America where the woman made more money than the man. And that's where you started seeing this come up. Today, we're looking at somewhere around 30% of households in America where the women make more money than Mm. the men do. 
And honestly, we think the number is probably actually higher than that because there's a whole lot of people who say, oh, I make exactly as much money as my wife does. And when someone says they make exactly as much money as their spouse, we're pretty sure they're lying. But we're not going <laughs> to hold them to it right now because uh, they're reinforcing their masculinity by saying, no, 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 I don't make less money than she does. So it's pretty widespread at this point. Although, as I'm sure we'll talk about it a little later, there are differences in the way men respond to it. So for almost all men, losing status as the breadwinner is important as a threat to masculinity. What really different is the way in which men respond to that threat to masculinity. And that can vary widely based on the predispositions of the men. I want to bring in now uh, Kay Kawashima Ginsburg. She's director of the Center for Information and Research on Civic Learning and Engagement at Tufts University. And she's with me right here in the studio. Uh, Kay, thanks very much for being here. It's great to be here. So you've done some really interesting research on men and women um, and how they voted in 2016. But you looked at uh, voting patterns amongst the group that I think many people would think is a very equity-minded group, uh, young voters. So, so talk a little bit about what you found. Sure. I looked at a couple of different sources. One was the exit poll nationally done for under 30-year-olds. And then for our own poll, which looked at millennials who were 18 to 34-year-old at the time of the polling. And what we generally found was that there was an enormous difference between young men and women in vote choice. Young women voted for Hillary Clinton by 63 percent, so almost two-thirds, whereas minority of men voted for Hillary Clinton for 47 percent. And we're talking about the generation of people who supported Barack Obama by two-thirds in 2008 and still 60 percent. And even 2016, they were the most likely to support Hillary Clinton at 55 percent. But once we open the lid of the millennials as a big group, we start to see real differences by gender and race. And this was the case. So, okay, if there was a big gap, uh, a lot more young women supported Hillary than young men. Was there any similar gap in 2012? Like maybe women just tend to be more like Democrats, say. Yeah, so that's a really great question, but not really. So young women have supported a Democrat candidate from 2008 through 16 at well over 60% throughout. However, young men really shifted down in their support. In 2008, they were really not that far apart. They were only about six points apart in terms of the support for Barack Obama. And that gap spread to 13 percent points in 2012 and now 17 points in 2016. So it's not a sudden phenomena that occurred just with Donald Trump versus Hillary Clinton, but it's been happening for the last eight years. Dan, uh, you have tied the sorts of personal findings that we talked about earlier um, in relation to gender roles in with politics. So explain to me, maybe using the 2016 election, how you combine people's own views of like themselves and their families in with politics. So we're looking here, we call them symbolic masculinities, ways in which men can assert their masculinity outside of these traditional roles of like being the breadwinner. And one of the ways, one of the most potent ways men can express their masculinity is through political and social views. Yeah, you can express your masculinity by not doing dishes, but you can also do it by saying, boy, I'm against women's rights. I'm against gay rights. Uh, in case of the 2016 election, we find a lot of men were expressing their masculinity by saying that they were not going to vote for Hillary Clinton. But how do you know, how do you know that they don't like her policies, but it has nothing to do with her gender. 
So this is one of my favorite experiments we ran during the 2016 election. So in a in a random digital telephone poll, we reminded, we experimentally assigned half of the men in our sample to be reminded that there are an increasing number of American households in which women make more money than men. And we asked them, well, how about in your household? So now we didn't really care what they said because we know men lie about how much money they make relative to their spouses. But we just wanted to remind them, hey, you know, there's a lot of households where women make more money than men do. Then we asked them about a matchup in the presidential election. This is before the nomination process was totally over. When the matchup we asked them about was Hillary Clinton versus Donald Trump, the men who'd been reminded about gender inequality and gender role threat suddenly preferred Donald Trump. They got, Donald Trump got a 20-point gain relative to Hillary Clinton wow. among those men. Now, when the matchup was between Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders— didn't make any difference at all. It wasn't about the policies. It wasn't about support for Republicans or Democrats. It was about trying to say they weren't going to support a woman for president because that itself is a real symbolic threat to men having dominance in society. If you want to be dominant in society, if you're worried about your place in society, the last thing you want is a woman to be holding the most powerful office in the land. So let me just question that on one point, though. One place where there are there are a couple places, but one place where Donald Trump and Bernie Sanders were aligned was being very against uh, things like NAFTA and the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which I mean, Hillary Clinton did weigh in on later, but she had previously supported TPP. Is it possible that the men who felt very negatively about um, Hillary Clinton, again, didn't dislike her because she was a woman, but they felt a certain way on trade deals? And that's why they liked Sanders and they liked Trump. I really like your optimism about how educated the American public is. <laughs> I'm just I'm not necessarily optimistic. I'm just I'm just want to make sure. <laughs> no, exactly. when we because we, we do this a lot, uh, we're one of the few groups, our survey groups, one of the few groups that asks a lot of factual questions about what people know about politics. And the level of ignorance is appalling. People just don't know very much about politics. In this case, you know, the this was taken in, I think, May of 2016. People just did not know very much about where the candidates stood on any of these issues. And in fact, if we're looking at Donald Trump's issues, they hadn't really even solidified, hadn't fully crystallized at that point. What's also interesting to me is we actually did see, when we talk about gender equality in that way, we actually saw a movement among women as well. And it was actually among older women, the sort of older white women we heard so much about in the 2016 election. They became more likely to say they were going to support Donald Trump as well when reminded of gender role equality. This is one thing that gets left out of this discussion. It's not just men who are very much in favor of men having a dominant role in society. It's actually also really older women who've lived their lives out, perhaps as, how, as homemakers, uh, in a world where men were dominant. And they actually have, in some ways, more traditional gender role views than men do. But was this aversion to voting for Hillary Clinton about women? Or do you think it was like about Hillary Clinton particularly? And this is always hard to pull apart, right? There's the old Gallup question that was asked from the 60s up until the 80s, asking people, would you vote for a woman for president if she was otherwise qualified for the office? And so that's, you know, so we can't really just say, oh, do people not think she was qualified? Would people vote for a woman, but not this particular woman? We can't really do that on surveys. But what we can do is we can go into focus groups and ask people what they think about Hillary Clinton, how they view Hillary Clinton. And what we saw is that older women especially said that they thought Hillary Clinton looked down on them, that looked down on women who held traditional gender roles. Mm. And that goes back very deep into the history of Hillary Clinton. Mm -hmm. If we remember when Hillary Clinton first came in the spotlight in 1992, she was talking about how she wasn't going to be baking cookies and having tea parties. Well, that's 
was seen as an attack on women who did have traditional gender roles and were baking cookies. And she's saying, well, I'm not like that. I'm different. And so Hillary Clinton, I think, was a uniquely polarizing figure. If it had been a woman who had more traditional gender roles, no, I don't think you'd get the same backlash. Mm. We didn't see any of this backlash against someone like Sarah Palin, who had very traditional gender roles. So I do think it is something unique to Hillary Clinton. You know, there's a really interesting research coming out of Princeton University that talks about women and leadership that actually suggested that people, including women, are very comfortable taking a leadership role up to a point, such as vice president or vice, uh, yeah, I was you know, thinking about student that too, because body Sarah president. Palin wasn't running for president, and that's different. Right. So once the woman tries to get to the top spot rather than assistant to or helper of the number one guy— you know, both men and women had issues. Women felt reluctant to go for that kind of position, and men also felt that the women may not be qualified for that. Uh, I think we also have to note that this isn't just about candidate choice. This is also about political viewpoints. And so one of the studies that I've done looks at the same men over time. And so we have men talking about the political views in 2006, 2008, and 2010. And we can track the changes in their political views within the same men based on what happened to their financial status during that period, which, of course, includes uh, most of the Great Recession. And we find is that when men are threatened, when men lose uh, status in their households, Republican men become much, much more Republican on all sorts of issue views, on things like abortion, on things like uh, aid to African-Americans, and Democratic men become a little bit more Democratic. So it's not just that they're responding to Hillary Clinton personally. Hmm. They are becoming more conservative or more liberal on a general basis uh, on these issues that are related to dominance or related to gender. And that's necessarily going to impact the way in which they're going to be evaluating presidential candidates. Right. I'm Kara Miller. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm speaking with Kay Kawashima-Ginsburg from Tufts and Dan Casino from Fairleigh Dickinson about changing gender attitudes and about politics. So, Kay, I'm going to throw this out to you first, but I'm interested in what both of you think. There was a scholarly paper published recently that looked at 40 years of a questionnaire that's been given to high school seniors. And one of the questions is essentially, do you agree with the notion that men should be breadwinners and women should take care of the home and the family? Starting in the 1970s, probably not surprisingly, students increasingly disagreed with the notion that men should be the breadwinners, women should stay at home. But then in 1995, the trajectory shifts. More students start liking the notion that men should go out and make money, uh, women should stay at home. Kay, I just wonder what you think is going on here. You know, a couple of things that I can think of is, one, there's been a plateau in number of women elected office since 1992, really. It's been really dropped, you know, stopped at 20 to 25 percent at national and local level, and it hasn't moved at all. So there's been certainly sort of a, you know, halt in a progress that was made up to the point where you were saying the number of people that were saying that was increasing. Okay, so it climbed up to 1992 to about 20, 25 percent, and it's just has not moved. Staff there. Okay. Mm-hmm. So that sort of suggests that the public opinion, again, went to a certain point and then hasn't shifted. And the young people have been still sort of following their parents or haven't really been that different when it comes to electing somebody who's a female, for example. And it also goes back to the survey that we did, which essentially stated that the young women, when asked that they were willing to be politically feminist, 
they almost felt as though they could not say that. So that suggests that in some ways, when the questions asked really about the political issue, like should women be certain things or should men be playing a certain role, you know, young men, young men and women today are unwilling to make a statement that's overly political. So that's a couple of things that I can think about. Mm. Dan, is this surprising to you? You know, this actually lines up with a lot of other data we've seen. Uh, so what some of the stuff we've, we ask about, uh, questions that we didn't even really think about asking before about 2010, was asking men if they feel like they're being discriminated against on the basis of their gender. Do they feel like men are being discriminated against? Do they feel like white people are being discriminated against? And again, from an objective viewpoint, it certainly doesn't feel like white people are being, obje- are being uh, discriminated against in America. But we do get increasing numbers of men who say, yes, they are facing discrimination in the workplace and in society more generally. And we've seen those numbers among all racial groups and all age groups creeping up really since that same time in the you know starting in the 1990s and the number of, in the 1990s we saw the percentage of men who say women face discrimination going down and more recently we've seen the numbers of men who say men face discrimination going up and so we've seen a men becoming more likely to believe that boy programs that help African Americans hurt white Americans programs that help women hurt men. And once you get into that logic, that sort of zero-sum thinking, then you're going to believe, well, boy, if there's affirmative action to help women, that means men are Hmm. losing out and I'm losing out and I'm facing discrimination because of that. I'm interested um, from both of you. Here we have been talking about a rise in the last 20 years, a a pretty big rise of um, men who say they feel discriminated against. Um, We see young people, high school seniors, saying more. I think, you know, traditional gender roles of the man being like the main breadwinner, I think that that may be the way to go. Where do you see things going forward? Are we heading towards a society in which more people embrace these kind of like cla- what, pe- what people would think of as sort of like classic 1950s gender roles uh, or this temporary? Kay, do you want to start? What do you think is happening? One thing that may suggest more and more mobilization among young people is that in the past presidential elections and thereafter, the Republican presidents tended to actually get young people care more and more about equality and potentially mobilize them. So Barack Obama was Barack Obama, and it was a special brand in many ways. But many young people who voted for him actually said that this is a vote to change the administration from that of George W. Bush to somebody else, anybody else. So that would be an indication that young people may feel more and more empowered and more and more imperative to become politicized. And that's particularly important for young women who tend to be really less politicized than young men are. They are much more likely to do things like volunteering and voting in national elections. They're less likely to feel like they can, you know, really go to town meetings and tell the city officials what to do, or they can feel really political, explicit in other ways. And this particular election, which has made young women feel more vulnerable than young men, this may be a time to become more and more mobilized. Where, you, where young women may be young mobilizing women. in a different mm-hmm. way. Yep. And and Dan, what do you see 
happening? What's the trajectory here? I Unfortunately, I don't see things uh, getting much better in terms of views of gender roles. And I think the big issue here is really about polarization, is that we are seeing, and so people who are liberal and are looking for a ray of sunshine here, I think the ray of sunshine is we do see liberal young men who, when they're put in threats, when their gender role is threatened, are finding different ways of expressing masculinity. So we see lots of millennials who talk about the importance of fatherhood, and they express their masculinity by being a really good dad, even if that doesn't mean they're not uh, being the breadwinner. They're at home, you know, making toys for their kid and leatherworking and building things. So there's that. But I think you're getting increasing polarization on the other side, too, because sort of economic vulnerability that motivates this sort of reversion to more traditional gender roles isn't going to get better. It's going to get worse. When we see you know, millions of people who drive trucks or drive cabs for a living being put out of work by self-driving cars, we see increasing automation, you know, which is really the big driver here, putting more people out of work and making the lives of men without a college education even more tenuous, making them even more economically vulnerable. They're going to have to find some other way to assert their masculinity. And what Donald Trump has shown is that giving them an outlet in partisan politics works. And so I can't imagine that future politicians won't seize on that lesson Hmm. and have a message that's empowering for that group in an era where they're going to be more and more and more disempowered. Dan Casino is an associate professor of political science at Fairleigh Dickinson University. And Kay Kawashima Ginsburg is director of the Center for Information and Research on Civic Learning and Engagement at Tufts. Thanks so much to both of you for this conversation. You're very welcome. Great talking with you, Kara. The more things change, the more they stay the same. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Ah, it's just me orders anybody see the new improved tomorrow isn't what it used to be yesterday keeps coming round it's just reality it's the same damn song with a different melody the market on our website we've put together links to research on how our views of gender influence our votes as well as more on that study that looks at the gender views of high school seniors over time that's all at innovationhub.org Support for Innovation Hub comes from the Museum of Science in Boston, working to inspire everyone to push the boundaries of what's possible through hands-on exhibits, interactive programs, K-12 engineering curricula, and educator resources. Learn more at mos.org. On January 20th, 2017, thousands of people converged on Washington, D.C. because a new president was being inaugurated. But ask yourself what sounds like kind of a stupid question. How did they know an inauguration was going on that day? Well, presidential inaugurations have been taking place on January 20th for almost a century now, and they happen like clockwork every four years. You could have found that info in newspapers, online, in magazines, in books. You could have planned for years to show up on January 20th and witness someone being inaugurated as president. The next day, January 21st, Thousands of people again converged on Washington, D.C., but this time it was for the Women's March, which was most prominent in D.C., but of course, it also happened all over the world. So same question, how did people know about it? The answer is very different. Just a couple of months before, in the wake of President Trump's election, several people started Facebook pages, and they encouraged friends to march on Washington in protest. The fact that millions of people around the world heeded that call says a lot about the power of social media to organize. 
But whether protests have any real teeth, like any staying power beyond that initial burst of excitement, is an open question. Zainab Tufekshi is an associate professor at the University of North Carolina, and she's the author of Twitter and Tear Gas, The Power and Fragility of Network Protest. Zainab, thanks for being here. Thank you for inviting me. So as I was talking about these big, uh, pro- this big protest in January, there have always been these major marches with big political impact. But I wonder, can you talk about the difference between something like the 1963 March on Washington and then the 2017 Women's March, which was also in Washington? Like, what were the differences? And in that basically 50 years, what has changed in terms of organizing people? Well, obviously, the similarities are clear, right? There are huge marches. Mm -hmm. There's great energy, lots of people. Uh, The big difference is what it took to organize the march. Uh, The 1963 March in Washington came after more than a decade of civil rights activism organizing movement building. And it took them six months to organize the march itself, too, Mm -hmm. And it wasn't just an intensive effort during those six months. There was this enormous infrastructure that the civil rights movement had built over the years to get to the place where they could even think about holding that kind of march and pull it off. And I know like it's in our history books right now, so it might seem like oh, it was just a march, but it was a really difficult one. Hmm. They couldn't even let people stay overnight in D.C. because back then you could not guarantee the safety of hundreds of thousands of people hmm coming together, mixed race, marching against racism, and have them stay overnight in D.C. and expect all of them to be safe. So they had to bring all those people in, and they had to get them out Mm. and have everything work. And, you know, at the last minute, their sound system was sabotaged. There were all sorts of issues they had to deal with. Now, contrast that with the Women's March, which also is a big march, pretty much the same area. The difference is, instead of being almost like the culmination of movement building, the Women's March is perhaps the first step mm-hmm. of movement building, mm-hmm. right? Because it started with a Facebook post and then a couple of people get together. And then obviously the organizers put in a lot of work. I don't mean to say that these marches aren't, you know, a lot right. of work. Right. But compared to the past, they're not 10 years of work to get mm-hmm. to that point. They're a couple of months of work to get to that point. And Back then, if the media wasn't friendly to you or if you didn't have a really intensive organization getting the word out, you couldn't get the word out easily. Mm -hmm. Whereas right now, you know, a hashtag here and a Facebook group there and boom, you can go viral and have that out. So this appears as if I'm telling this big story of empowerment through digital media. And I kind of am, right? It is really Mm -hmm. empowering to be able to hold that big march so quickly. But it comes with disempowering aspects. And one of the biggest ones is, I mean, think of it like you've got a car and you're going from zero to 100 miles in three seconds. But you're actually building the car at the same time. You don't really have the steering wheel, the decision-making committee, the leadership, all those things. You barely know each other. I mean, this is like a get-to-know-you march. (laughs) Right. It's exactly right. You got to know people. That's fine. You could get to know them over time, and you know that's a plausible path. But you have to make very important, fraught decisions immediately, mm-hmm. right? So you're already at 100 miles an hour, right? You're already, you know, you're protesting an administration. You're very large, and things are moving, happening every day. 
And you don't have necessarily the kind of sort of network building and organizational building and infrastructure building that you could have had to make if you didn't have, you know, Twitter and Facebook groups. Right, right. I think it's actually really interesting that, as you say, like the 1963 March in Washington was not really necessarily about um, galvanizing people. It was like saying, we've been doing this work on civil rights for years in small ways all over the country, you know, in these ways that may be passed unnoticed. But here, we're going to make you, the public, the government, notice it. You know, like this, this, is, this is the culmination and that is so different from the Women's March. And with the Women's March, I remember people being interviewed on television, walking away saying, this inspired me. I'm going to go do something now. Like, I want to run for office or I want to contribute or I want to volunteer. Like, this is a good first step. Right. So today's marches, uh, large marches like this, are absolutely, they operate exactly what you said. They operate as very good first steps. They mm-hmm. energize people. They give them direction. You get to know lots of people who think like you. The open question is, will those people do everything else? Because that takes time. Mm -hmm. And the second open question is, will they be able to do it in time? Because, um, I mean, let's think about the U.S. context, right? Uh, The obvious next point for the United States uh, political situation is the 2000. Uh, 18 midterm elections, right? right? Exactly. That's barely a little more than a year away, yep. right? That's not a lot of time as these things go. So those, is the infrastructure building, like is the post-March infrastructure building happening? It may well be that people are a little blinded by the sizes of the marches. But what I try to tell people is that I study social movements and internet, right? And I think the internet has kind of put springs to your feet Mm -hmm. if you're talking about the march. You can jump really high with those springs when it comes to marching. But they're jumping on a trampoline, and they're going to get off that trampoline, and they're going to have to, you know, run a marathon. And in the past, if I saw them jump that high, I might have said, yeah, they'll probably run that marathon. Whereas right now, I don't know. It's an open question. You've pointed out that when the Tea Party uh, got inspired about 10 years ago and held protests, which also happened to be the same time that the Occupy movement was out there holding protests, um, that the Tea Party ended up with over a billion dollars to organize primary challenges, whereas we're not looking at anywhere near that kind of money so far to left-leaning groups. How do you think that happened? So just to compare how these things fared, What happened with the Tea Party movement is twofold. One, it was a very electorally focused movement. They didn't just protest. They got together very quickly in various locales. And they're like, how do we ask our congressperson? How do Mm -hmm. we primary the Republican? In fact, researchers found they were almost like political scientists. They knew ins and outs of political legislature and and all that stuff very well. Why? There's a lot of things they were misinvolved because they wanted to change and block various laws mm-hmm. and they want to re- really laser focus on. They were misinformed on a bunch of stuff, but how to make sure that bill gets stuck in committee, they need that up and down. Mm-hmm. So the other thing that happened to them is a uh, very s- sort of sympathetic billionaire stepped up. Mm-hmm. 
and gave him lots of money and guidance. So if you want to sort of look at the 2016 version of this, in just just 2016, just one year, uh, most recent year, just the co-brothers who uh, helped fund the Tea Party movement, they spent about a billion dollars, that's billion with a B as in boy, on down-ballot races, up and down the ballot in the United States. And down-ballot is really important because that's infrastructure, that's local infrastructure, that's what's going to get you the presidential race later, too. Do you think, uh, from the work you've done, that that sort of infrastructure just like isn't being built on the left? I mean, I just checked Facebook recently, and there was, I don't know, 10 more marches being planned, hmm. right? There's, there's this sort of march after march after march. I think it's partly because there is no mechanism to try to decide, well, what else are we going to do, right? Uh, what are the other kinds of protest things you could do? You don't have this collective decision-making capacity that you built over time. Uh, I have seen that in many other countries, and that doesn't usually end very well for the challenging movement because the sort of the power you're challenging is not sitting on its hands, right? So your first big march takes them by surprise, and they're really annoyed, and right. but it doesn't have the same power anymore the second time because the people in power figure out this doesn't have as much teeth. I'll give you one example, like phone calls, Right. A lot of people are now calling their legislators, which is not a bad thing to do. People should call uh, and make themselves heard. But in the past, if you got 10,000 calls in a day, and if you're a congressperson, you'd freak out. You'd be like, they're going to unseat me. Uh, They're gunning for me, and they're going to succeed. Because that 10,000 calls would have taken a lot of effort to organize. There'd be no spring in the feet of the organizers, and you would have thought, they can call that much. They can also do other things. Whereas right now, you know, there's all these bots and enter your mm-hmm. zip code and they will just connect you. And it's so easy. Well, you know what? In politics, in the politics of protest, easier is actually not stronger. Because I've already seen in a lot of Republican Congress people, they're like, oh, they're just they're dismissing them as robocalls. Mm. Because they kind of think it doesn't threaten them. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Zainab Tufekshi, author of Twitter and Tear Gas, The Power and Fragility of Network Protest. Um, You talked before about uh, protests overseas. You know, when you saw um, the the protests sort of arise in the aftermath of the Trump election, you thought, this is, I think I've kind of seen this before uh, to some degree. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about the Arab Spring, and particularly about sort of, you know, this thought that people initially had of like, wow, these are protests, this is change. But how how much power the government actually seemed to have over either technology or organizing or whatever, and that they were able to hit back like that. It wasn't, you know, technology and protest did not win the day. So when I look at the public sphere now, you know, six years after the Arab Spring, Arab uprisings, what I see around the world is that governments have figured out that they can't really block information. It's gotten really hard. Mm. And even if you're China, you know, there's hundreds of millions of netizens there. And they would be able to overpower the censorship apparatus 
if they were really motivated to do so. I mean, mm. it's kind of hard. You can put a lot of resources in censorship, but even in the extreme case, it takes an enormous amount of resources, and it's only that much effective if the people are motivated. Right. But what you can do, if you can't block the information from getting to people, you can keep the information from being empowering. You can break the link between information and action by challenging the credibility of the information. Uh-huh. And we've seen this with Russia. We've seen this with Russia. Russia is one of the innovators in this space. Mm-hmm. China does this professionally. They have a professional so-called 50-cent army. Uh, allegedly, they were paid 50 cents for posts, but that probably isn't true, but the name stuck. So what they do is they uh, create distractions around sensitive anniversaries or political moments. So if there's something going on that's important and that people are trying to pay attention and dissidents are like, oh, look over here, this sort of hundreds of thousands of people who are kind of coordinated secretly, they come and say, oh, look, here's something else. And Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter what that something else is. It could be some movie stars having an affair. It doesn't matter. Anything that captures people's attention means that there's going to be less attention, which is oxygen to movements going to this other thing. Yeah, so there's all these things. How how did you first become interested in technologically fueled protests? <laughs> well, um, that's a great question. I mean, the obvious answer is I'm from Turkey. And I grew up under the 1980 military coup. I was a child then. And you know how they say Eskimos have lots of words for snow. I don't know if it's true or not. Well, in Turkey, we have lots of words for coups. We have so (laughs) many kinds that we Mm. distinguish them Mm. uh, by nature. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, you have snow, you have flurries, you have, you know, this, that, sleet. We have so many coups, unfortunately, Mm. that we have, we distinguish them. And 1981 was a particularly harsh one. It was a military dictatorship, and it was very heavy censorship, and you couldn't get any news. There was one TV channel, right? So this is just, you know, you had Little Ass on the Prairie all the time and things like that, which made no really? sense. Did you stumble. really watch Little House yes. on the Prairie? And not only did I watch it, like we all knew Laura Ingalls and the, all the people. <laughs> I watched that when I was a kid too. But I know. And we couldn't make heads or sense out of it because, you know, in Istanbul, uh, in Turkey, there is no frontier because <laughs> there's no middle of nowhere. Right? You dig right. and you just form more empires underneath where you are. And you right. dig more, you run into right. a Neolithic village. Like the idea that there'd be places that were relatively sparsely unoccupied just didn't make any sense, even right. if you sort of uh, ignore the fact that the indigenous people were also there in the right, United right, States. Right. But compared to the Middle East, even that's a recent development. I, and I, I, I got a job as a computer programmer really early on, like first year of college, I was already working. In fact, first semester of college, I started working uh, as a programmer. And one of the things that happened early on is um, I worked at IBM, and IBM had an intranet. And that's a network that's internal to the company. Mm. And a lot of companies have them. The thing is, I got a sense of that intranet before I even experienced the internet because the internet hadn't yet come to Turkey. Mm. It took some time. And all of a sudden, you know, you could just sort of go home and there's a single channel and, <laughs> you know, irrelevant stuff and you can't make sense of what's going on. And then I could go to work 
and have unfettered communication with IBM employees around the world. And as soon, and then the internet came to Turkey, and I was like, "Sign me up! Give me that modem!" <laughs> and, and the rest is the book. Yeah. Zainab Tufekci is an associate professor at the University of North Carolina. She's also the author of Twitter and Tear Gas, The Power and Fragility of Network Protest. Zainab, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for inviting me. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Destination Medical Center, a strategic economic initiative in Rochester, Minnesota, to build global destinations for life science, medicine, and health. Learn more at dmc.mn. Last summer, the Pew Research Center published a sentence that was, yes, kind of wonky, but it was also stunning if you think about its implications. Here's the sentence. In many ways, America remains two societies, one black and one white, as measured by key demographic indicators of social and economic well-being. That word remains, that it remains two societies, that's important because it refers back to a landmark commission established just about 50 years ago, the Kerner Commission. They had come to the conclusion that we had two very distinct societies, one black and one white. Henry Rock, a businessman in Charlotte, North Carolina, remembers the Kerner Commission, which grew out of riots and unrest in cities across the country. For many, including the president at the time, these were shocking events to witness, and there had to be some kind of answer. This matter is far, far too important for politics. It goes to the health and the safety of all American citizens. That was Lyndon Johnson speaking in 1967, and he asked in that speech, Three questions. What happened? Why did it happen? And what can be done to prevent it from happening again and again? Sometimes various administrations have set up commissions that were expected to put the stamp of approval on what the administration believed. This is not such a commission. We are looking to you not to approve our own notions, but to guide us and to guide the country through a thicket of tension, conflicting evidence, and extreme opinions. What the commission came back with in 1968 included that famous line, our nation is moving towards two societies, one black, one white, separate and unequal. Martin Luther King, who would be assassinated just a few weeks later, said the report was a physician's warning of approaching death with a prescription for life. And what Pew reported last year about the financial component of that separateness is that those two societies still exist. White households, they said, are about 13 times as wealthy as black households. So the average white household is worth about $140,000. The average black household is worth about $11,000. Henry Rock has been trying to push back against those numbers, and he has drawn to one particular gap-closing strategy, entrepreneurship. You know, really it was about how can we get those folk that have typically been on the sidelines watching the entrepreneurial parade go by, the ones who you would think of as the hackers and the hustlers and the 'er ne'er-do-wells, right, who nevertheless have guts and guile and cunning, and how do we redirect some of that ingenuity and imagination that they have. 
Rock is a businessman and the founder of City Startup Labs in Charlotte, which focuses on fostering entrepreneurship among young people of color. He says that the light bulb moment for him came when he was living in New Jersey and Cory Booker, who's now a senator, had just been elected mayor of Newark. Possibility was in the air and Rock wanted to seize on it because the alternative, in his view, was disastrous. He points to a recent report from the Institute for Policy Studies that echoes the Kerner Commission. One of the striking stats that came out of that was that there was a, a chance that black families' opportunity to catch up with white families, if all things remained the same, would take 228 years. Whoa. So when we think in terms of uh, how long slavery lasted, we're looking at numbers that approximate that in terms of time. Hmm. So talk a little bit about how you think entrepreneurship can help sort of break this cycle that we're in and sort of disrupt the, I don't know, trajectory that we're on. Like you said, you know, if it takes 200 years to close the gap, that's, for most people, not really acceptable. Oh, it's beyond uh, not acceptable. There is a uh, study done by Raj Chetty, who is a uh, researcher um, at the time he was at Harvard when he did this study. And what he um, was illustrating was the socioeconomic and particularly social mobility gap that he sees in major markets around the country. And Charlotte ranked last uh, out of the top 50 markets. And there was a task force that was put together here in town that looked to see how we might be able to, as a community, come to terms with this. And, and some of the recommendations are looking at a long-term trajectory. So we're looking at 20 to 30 years to solve some of these problems. But I think that we don't have that kind of time. So entrepreneurship, as I see it, and self-employment, is a way in which you can, at the very least, try to get control of your own economic circumstances. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with the founder of City Startup Labs, Henry Rock, about how to foster entrepreneurship amongst black millennials. Why entrepreneurship? Because you could make the argument that if somebody doesn't have very much, they don't have a safety net to fall back on, a better idea would be to get into corporate America where there's health care included. You feel like you've got a package of benefits behind you. You've got maybe vacation days and sick days. You know, and the, the downside of entrepreneurship, right, is hey, I got to figure out the health care piece of it. You got to do your own payroll. You never quite know from day to day. You just don't feel like you have that net under you that you might in corporate America. So entrepreneurship seems the riskier bet. Well, it's, it's riskier in some respects, but I think on the flip side of that, we're much more likely if you're able to have a – develop a, a thriving enterprise to be able to hire other people who they may not be the best candidates for a job in corporate America or corporate Charlotte, hmm. right? And uh, they may not have the credentials or the skill sets that would allow them to get a uh, family-sustaining employment. Hmm. And I think that if folks are able to 
have at least an opportunity to control their own economic destiny. I think that there's something very empowering about that. Hmm. So if we back up to our discussion at the beginning about the gap, I wonder if you think you see the gap beginning to close. Are the ingredients there? What do we need to do as a country to close that gap more quickly? Well, first of all, the gap is not closing. It's unfortunately widening. I'll refer back to um, Cory Booker. There's a term that he uses that I really love, and that's courageous empathy. And I think that what we need on the part of our policymakers is some courageous empathy, right? But as long as we continue to marginalize folks and have mean-spiritedness in terms of our policy and, and policy making and policy implementation, I think we're only going to exacerbate this. And it's to our discredit as a country because I believe it was McKinsey, if I'm not mistaken, that released a, a study that shows that with greater diversity at the corporate level, vis-a-vis those companies that don't have uh, great diversity policies, right, that those companies that do outshine their counterparts Mm -hmm. uh, in terms of uh, economic performance. So I think, you know, we, if we're going to close this gap, if we're going to close not just the gaps that we see here in Charlotte, but all throughout this country in terms of the wealth disparities that we have, Mm Uh, we really need to have a set of policies at the highest level. Those that control the levers of power need to think from a place of courageous empathy and act from that place as well. Henry Rock is the founder of City Startup Labs, based in Charlotte. Henry, thank you so much for your time. Well, thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Matt Purdy, associate producer Mark Solinger, and engineer Doug Sugertz. We also had production help this week from Marielle Carricker and Samantha Crozier. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Support for Innovation Hub comes from the Museum of Science in Boston, working to push the boundaries of what's possible. R.I. Public Radio International.